Metricast. A young girl with a stutter discovers Elvis Costello and inspires her to become a top radio DJ. When I heard Elvis Costello, I realized there was a place for a misfit like me. He was the reason it all became clear that I could do something. And I think that when I saw Elvis do it and then I saw others do it, you could be different. I knew I'd found my tribe. This is Sonic Impact Elvis Costello. Hello and welcome to Sonic Impact. Welcome. I'm Elliot Goldberg. And I'm Olivia Goldberg. And Olivia's my daughter. Yes, I am. So today our artist is Elvis Costello. We're going to get to that soon. But before we do, each week we like to start out with current Sonic Impacts. And this week for us was all about the Paul McCartney concert. The Paul McCartney concert. I'll just set it up. Basically, I got tickets for Olivia and her brother Griffin, and it was such a special experience to be able to take my kids now 50 years later after the Beatles broke up. But for Olivia, this was like an incredibly special night. Let me just start by saying that if I died today, I would probably be okay because this experience was peak life The morning after the concert, I woke up and just immediately started sobbing because I think I was hit with the realization of what had just happened. This man has been my number one musical influence my entire life, and I never thought I would be able to see the Beatles in concert. Or as close as you could actually get to it at this point. Yeah, and... I'm so thankful, so lucky to be alive at a time when he is still performing. Well, I feel the exact same way. I've seen him a number of times, but he's almost 80. And to really still be bringing a three-hour concert, playing 35 songs. I've never seen any concert that long in my life. You haven't seen a Springsteen concert, but yeah, this is pretty, (laughs) pretty close. Well, it's really amazing about what Paul's doing. He plays so many great Beatles songs and the generations that you see from little kids to older parents to grandparents. It's so powerful. Like when we were walking into the concert, seeing everyone in their Beatles t-shirts. So being able to be in that space with a Beatle, the Beatle, with all of those fans, it's just beyond words. What were some of the highlights for you? Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, because wow. that's a John Lennon song, and I've always loved that song, and Paul doing it was so cool. Rare cut there, Olivia. Yes. I love that song. It's just a song that they collected words from a poster on John's wall and came up with this masterpiece. Live and Let Die was obviously insane with the bombs and fireworks and lasers. Yeah, the last time he did that, I lost my hearing for two years because (laughs) I was so close and the bombs went off. The end, Golden Slumbers and To Carry That Weight Into The End. I love that ending to the Beatles. I I love how that ends kind of their career. And their last songs on their last album, so it's pretty And it's so prophetic, like those songs and the way they go into each other and their very final words, which he ended on. The crazy thing about seeing McCartney is the variety of his career from acoustic songs like Blackbird and the song for John here today. Sobbing. It's your whole life flashes in front of you because you've lived with all these songs. I have to say the highlight for me was what Peter Jackson did. He took the footage from Get Back from the rooftop concert. He put John in the concert on video screen, obviously. And they did a duet of I've Got a Feeling with the band. And it sounded totally integrated. That was one of the most 
beautiful and memorable moments to see John and Paul sing together is really lucky that you got to see it. Insanely lucky. That was definitely a highlight for me as well. What you're getting here is that generational connection that we have on a lot of music, but especially on the Beatles and McCartney. And to be able to take my kids, it made me so emotional. When he did Golden Slumbers, you know, once there was a way to get back home, I, I really teared up. It was just so special to be there with my kids. We don't know how long he's going to be able to do this. He's almost 80. I really hope I get to see him again, but there's a decent chance that I might never see him again. And so I think that is what made this experience so special. Absolutely. So that's our current Sonic Impact. But let's talk about this episode today. So Elvis Costello is our artist and his impact on a young woman named Lisa Traxler, who we'll get to in a minute. But Olivia, you love to look into these artists because some of them you're not that familiar with. And I think for the audience, that's really helpful to understand where the artist was at this time and some backstory. Definitely. I knew next to nothing about Elvis Costello, and I learned a lot of interesting stuff. For example... Do tell. <laughs> Elvis Costello was kind of in this punk rock scene, but in 1976, when he recorded his first album, My Aim is True, he was really not your classic punk rocker at all. His real name was Declan McManus, and he was a computer data analyst. I did not know that. That mm -hmm. is really fascinating. He lived in the suburbs with his wife and newborn baby and had to quietly write the album late at night at home to not wake his family. And because they were tight on money, uh, he had to record the album in a total of 24 hours worth of studio time. And the initial singles that he released didn't do very well, but the album, My Aim is True, had major success. It has one of his biggest hits of all time, Allison, on it, which is actually about a woman in the supermarket that checked him out. He thought she was so beautiful and just couldn't believe that she was just mundanely stacking cans. Obvious was an insanely talented songwriter, singer, and he didn't fit the mold. His look, his sound, his voice, and his lyrics. Absolutely. That's what I was just going to touch on. He kind of was in the punk rock scene, but he wasn't really either of those things. He kind of combined punk, vintage rock and roll, and basically was just a very unique artist in his look and his sound. So that is what our guest today found so inspiring about. What you just hit on is really important because when he blew up and he came out of nowhere, and our guest Lisa Traxler was a teenager at the time, and she discovered this album and it changed her life. It was a major impact on who she became. Lisa went on to be a famous DJ at WBCN in Boston from 1984 to 1990, as well as many other radio stations before that. She was very influential in breaking artists, as well as being a respected music journalist and musician, including the lead singer for the band House of Joy. And as you'll hear from the story, it all leads to an incredible encounter with her musical hero, Elvis Costello. So today on Sonic Impact, Olivia? Elvis Costello's impact on a young Lisa Traxler. Lisa Traxler, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so fascinated by your story. You were a longtime radio DJ personality. Your knowledge of music is bar none. So why don't you go back to sort of the beginning when you discovered Elvis? 1977 was a really pivotal year. I was a kid. At the time, if you think back to what was on mainstream radio in Denver, where I grew up, was things like Fleetwood Mac's Rumors and um, Billy Joel and the Eagles and the Eagles and the Eagles. 
a lot of it was really good, but it was really safe. And I went into my favorite music store down the street. A friend of mine was there and he was putting albums on the racks. And there among the Jethro Tulls of the world, there was this album that had this spastic looking guy on it. He looked like a cross between a praying mantis and uh, Buddy Holly. And even the album artwork was really bizarre and remarkable and very interesting looking. And I said to my friend, I said, what is this? And he's got the first name of Elvis Presley. He says, oh, you don't want to listen to that. I said, I don't want to listen to that. And he says, no, no, it's some of that punk rock stuff. I mean, there's a real, a real resistance to new sounds and new attitudes. The minute he said that, of course, I knew I had to get it. So I picked up a copy of My Aim is True, the first album by Elvis Costello. And it was a game changer for me. I loved the fact that he upset people. Now, with our current ears, Elvis doesn't seem so revolutionary. You hear things like Allison now, and yeah, the lyrics are a little subversive, but the music is not. But if you think about all the stuff that wasn't on the radio in 1977, I mean, there were two Ramones albums in that one year. That first Clash album came out that year. And that's where the split happened between mainstream radio and what happened in music. And Elvis was the center point of that that was just a little bit closer to what people would accept. And it was a game changer for me. I so, just love what he did. Tell me where you were in your life when you discovered Elvis Costello. Being in Denver as a girl was not the kind of time when you were going to have an electric guitar and an amplifier. So I think that I saw Elvis and saw that you could do something different. So he also awakened the musician in me. And it wasn't all that long after that that I actually rebelled and got an electric guitar. So we can say that Elvis was the reason that you picked up the guitar. You ended up becoming a musician. So why was that album the impetus for Wanted to Rock? I think that the best art in the world always upsets someone. I think that artists that aim for that middle ground where it sounds pretty good, where it's nice, that's death to me. I think that art is supposed to upset people. What was the song that really spoke to you and, and why? I mean, everybody remembers hearing Allison. And Allison was a really interesting song because it was a ballad and it was really pretty, but it's a really nasty little song. If you listen to the lyrics, if you listen to it, it's pretty threatening. And it's, it's an eye-opener. The album as a whole, it wasn't real long. It took him a total of 24 hours to record in three sessions. Wow, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, it's very spontaneous. And it contains errors and all the things that I think make rock and roll so great. Elvis was great at capturing a moment, as they say, capturing lightning in a bottle. And that whole album from beginning to end was a great album. So when you say what songs, I almost never listened to just one song. I would put on the whole album. But there's always a connection with the personal in music. And you said it, it upset people. So was mm -hmm. there something going on in your childhood, your life at that <laughs> point that spoke to you? You know, the sound of the music or his lyrics or the whole package? <laughs> well, I was kind of a teenage hellion. <laughs> so um, I think it was just the attitude probably, but then the musicality of it kept me there. I wouldn't have stayed with Ellis if it hadn't been for the musicality. He was an outsider and I was an outsider. I mean, I grew up not being the cool kid, the one that wasn't picked first in dodgeball. So I think that him looking like that on the album cover and not trying to make himself into a pretty boy and then not seeming to care about it, it just appealed to me. I mean, I was a renegade too. And that's probably why I like the Ramones too, you know, because they were different and they weren't trying to follow the same path. 
Well, that's funny because now listening to Elvis, it doesn't sound that dangerous. It sounds sort of acceptable. You know, it's melodic. It's not so alternative. At that time, people have to realize it was Fleetwood Mac, it was the Eagles. And Elvis was sort of close to punk and new wave. This was a blast. So how did discovering Elvis take you into the next phase of your musical life? It really did. It changed my life completely because I grew up with a stutter and didn't really know what I wanted to do. I got a job in a recording studio, but when I started college, even though I had a stutter, I still have it, but I hide it. I can't hear Um, it at all. So you have done a great job. Well, good. But when I started in college, I got a job on the radio station, which nobody could believe because, I mean, I was this outsider. I wasn't the cool kid and I had a stutter. (laughs) I went and got a job on the radio station, KJHK in Lawrence, Kansas, and it was very subversive. I'm telling you, Lawrence, Kansas was the hotbed. I mean, I saw everybody there. So Elvis was kind of mainstream, if you will, compared to what you were playing and listening to. He was still so musical that he was totally acceptable. But when I played Jethro Tull once, boy, I really got trouble for that one. And they didn't like it when I played Van Halen once either. (laughs) Of course, all the stuff that Elvis was doing after that, including Armed Forces and uh, This Year's Model, those albums showed growth. And as he released more material, we could sort of see a more 3D version of this spastic guy. And with the attractions, his own band behind him instead of the backup band, which is Clover. It was Huey Lewis's band, actually, that backed him on the first album without Huey. So by the time Imperial Bedroom came out, that was it for me. I was like, oh, my God. It was like seeing something go from a cardboard cutout to being a full-fledged person. And Imperial Bedroom was a phenomenal album. I'm following the arc now, and your discovery of Elvis set you on this path to love music, to become a musician and get into the music business. Would you say that it led you to become a radio DJ personality? I think that without that album, I probably would not have done that, yeah. Your career, you've had incredible success in Boston and other places. You've broken bands. But when you can Mm -hmm. then pinpoint that artist and that album, try to put that Mm -hmm. in words, what that meant to you? Well, it meant everything. I mean, from a life standpoint, it led me to live in Dallas and Denver and Kansas City. And music was something that was so important to me growing up. I spent my entire childhood listening to music, the Beatles, the Stones, or the Monkees. And when I heard Elvis Costello and realized there was a place for a misfit like me, it kind of paved a way for me to to find my way. And congratulations, honestly, to overcome your stutter, breaking into that business must not have been easy. As a woman in the radio business, there weren't a lot of you, right, in rock radio. No, there was none of us. Being a woman in radio was really tough. But the fact that I knew so much about music, I was never one of those women that was like, hi, I'm Angelique. I didn't do that. In fact, Lisa Traxler is not my real name. And I purposely chose that name because it didn't sound like a radio name. I wanted to be the pal on the radio. I didn't want to be the sex pot on the radio. I wanted to be the girl next door that you could go to a show with. That knew a lot about music that was knowledgeable. Right, right. Because that was my whole angle. I had a lot of people tell me since then that they like my voice or something like that. But really, it's not about the voice. I consider myself one of the world's greatest rock and roll fans. That's how I got working in radio. After you became a huge fan, where did Elvis fit into your life and in your career in those key years? After that first album came out and I got in college radio, Elvis was touring uh, at that time. And I saw him play a couple of times. 
But in those early days, Elvis was very hit or miss, I think, with the kind of personality he was. I distinctly remember going backstage to see him once in Canton City to say hello to him. He wasn't doing interviews, but I was invited to a meet and greet. And he was not speaking to anyone. He was not very friendly because he just had his arm broken by Bonnie Bramlett because he said something disparaging about Ray Charles and she took exception to it. So he was sort of standoffish. Um, It's hard to be an artist and always be on. And I never held against artists if they don't feel like making you their best friend. But I did continue to be fascinated with his music. And I played the heck out of him on the radio and I promoted him wherever I could. And I eagerly anticipated every new release he had. That takes us to the moment in your career, in your life, that you actually got to spend some time with Elvis. And Mm -hmm. you forged ahead and pushed through that barrier that Elvis put up. Tell us that story. He had a new album out, which was Imperial Bedroom, my favorite Elvis album, and one of my favorite albums of all time. I had arranged ahead of time to do an interview with him. But when I went back there, his manager, Jake Rivera, who was just about as prickly as a manager can ever be, he decided that Elvis had somewhere else to be and that I was not going to be able to do the interview. And I was very disappointed because I was looking forward to it, especially because I loved this new album. And I really felt like I got it. I really felt like it was something that I related to. I really understood where he was going and things as an artist. I thought we had a great interview to be done. But no, I wasn't going to get the chance. So I did say goodbye to him backstage. I said, I'm sorry, Elvis. I really was hoping we could do an interview. But Jake says that you got to go. And and he says, oh, Jake, do I have to go? And Jake was like, oh, yeah, we got to go. You see, we got to go. And Elvis was like, oh, I I guess I've got to go. He said, but what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, nothing. He says, let's go to lunch. I was like, okay, I think I can do that. (laughs) How How wonderful. It was great. So I got invited to this fancy hotel and I met him for lunch and he came. I couldn't believe it. I went there and I thought, this is surely not going to happen. But I went there with my little tape recorder, my 60 minute tape and all ready to go. Batteries charged up and hopeful, but not convinced it was going to happen. And I was taken to this place to wait. And sure enough, he shows up and he's such an incredible gentleman. He was really very polite, very cordial very friendly, very open. And I think he probably just thought I was some kid because I was really young, probably thought I was some kid that wanted to say they met Elvis Costello. So we went into this private dining room and sat down and he said, what will you have? And I think I got a salad or something, which I probably didn't even touch because I was too nervous to eat around Elvis Costello. And it was after we started talking that he realized that I knew what the hell I was talking about. And I think that as we talked about his music and then eventually about other music, that we were very kindred spirits. We liked the same things. We had the same references. I did actually understand where he was going, where he'd been. And it was very easy to talk to him. And I think he found it very easy to talk to me. So we talked and we talked and we talked. And I think that I was supposed to get maybe a half an hour, maybe 45 minutes. And Elvis kept the entire tour waiting for over three hours while we had lunch and extended lunch and talked. And of course, I ran out of tape very early on. So a lot of it's not recorded for history, but it's written in my heart. It was a really great, great time. We had a wonderful, wonderful lunch. 
How rare to meet one of your idols, to connect with them on such a personal level. And he respected you, I'm sure. This isn't just some fangirl. She knows what she's talking about. And that is where people, especially with music, really connect. It was funny because he probably thought I'd come in there having heard Allison or something. And I kind of thought it was a fun song. But, you know, I understood when he was talking about weaving in harpsichords and glockenspiels and stuff and multi-track recording and various techniques. And uh, even we talked about the influence of certain jazz musicians on his songwriting. And it was like, we just really connected. And here he is, this guy, he was older than me and English. And I was this young American girl with a cheap tape recorder, but we just found a connecting interest. And it was remarkable. And it was a great, great conversation. And I actually got home from that and typed it all up. And I said, this needs to be published. So I sent it to Cream Magazine, and it was a cover story for Cream Magazine. Incredible. And you can find that somewhere, right? I would imagine. Is it- it's got a great intro phrase that you can find if you Google it. Bad news was waiting for me backstage is the first line of that. Nice. Because that's when I was supposed to have the interview and it didn't happen. You know, often I think when you meet your idols, it can be a disappointment. It sounds like this was a thrill of the lifetime, and you must have come away with it having the utmost respect, even more maybe from Elvis. What, what, when you walked away from that interview, what was your takeaway? I thought we were friends, and we were. And actually, I did see him again. I saw him play a couple of times, and I didn't go backstage. I try not to be just, you know, hi, I'm here again. But when I was working at WBCN in Boston several years later, he actually came in for an interview. He was doing an interview with the afternoon guy, I think, Mark Granto. And he walked in the door and I was like, AC. And he's like, hello. So he remembered me from back then. He was very nice, very cordial, a little more reserved and understandably because he had his new wife on his arm. And I find that gentlemen generally are a little bit more reserved when they have their wife on their arm. <laughs> Probably smart. But um, don't get me wrong. He was a little flirty at the end of the interview, but it was nothing serious. The flurriest he got is that on the tape recorder, he recorded a message for my answering machine informing the caller that we had run away to a desert island together. So that was the flirtiest he got. Yeah. I always want to wrap up what the essence of this podcast is, which is the impact that Elvis Costello has had on your life, your career, just who you are as a person. Can you try to sum that up? Oh, boy. How could I sum that up? I mean, he was the beginning of my road. He was... The reason it all became clear that I could do something at that moment, because he was a misfit and he looked like a misfit and he created music that didn't fit the norm. And that was something that spoke to me. In current terms, you'd call him a disruptor. And I've always been a disruptor. And I appreciate that. That shaking up of pop culture is important. And everybody that's ever been an important artist has shaken up pop culture in some significant way. And for me, Elvis did that. And you shook up pop culture and you weren't sort of traditional in your career. So in a way, there is some parallel to you and Elvis. I think that's just who I, I am naturally. And I think that when I saw Elvis do it and then I saw others do it, when I saw that you could be different and find a path, I knew I'd found my tribe. That's awesome. Now, looking back your whole life, what's your relationship with Elvis at this point? I mean, has it ever waned at all? You've just always had a love and respect for him and his music? Yeah, it's not to say that I don't think he's ever missed the mark with music. I think he has. But I also think that the best artists do sometimes, because if you don't ever miss the mark, you're probably not trying hard enough. He's always tried 
to do something different, whether it was uh, a country record or if it's Burt Bacharach or he's worked on classical things. And he's even redone some of his classic music. I think Elvis is a real artist and really is able to evolve. And that makes him still relevant. I have not seen him at all since back in those days. And I don't actually think I will ever see him again. But I'm certainly very thankful for the time he spent with me. And I'm glad that we connected so well. Not a lot of people can say that they spent a lunch with one of their musical heroes. Especially such a great lunch. Lisa, I just want to thank you so much for coming on, telling your story, telling your life. It's amazing to hear what you've done, how you've lived your life, and there's real integrity there. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. You'd be amazed at the stories I haven't told you. That's all I'm going to say. (laughs) All right, Lisa Traxler, thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me. What a story. I love her story. First of all, I love Lisa's background. You know, now we hear a lot of female DJs, but at the time, it was a tough career to crack into. The fact that she did with a stutter is really groundbreaking. And it seems pretty clear that she may not have been able to do that without the influence of this one artist. And I think that's pretty profound. I think a lot of our stories tell how an artist definitely impacted someone, changed parts of their life or got them through something. I think in Lisa's case, you can literally say that Elvis Costello and her discovery of his music completely changed the trajectory of her life. And the fact that she got to sit down with a person like that and to get along as well as they did. I mean, that's my dream. And to respect her. Yeah. There was a difference between being a fangirl and getting to spend time with and a professional, knowledgeable music fan who could really speak to Elvis about yeah. his music. For her to really be able to sit down with him and for him to respect her and for them to really bond, that is the dream. I think you can relate, Olivia, as a young woman who's trying to find her way. And you've had certainly some artists that have had that sort of similar impact that spoke to you. Yeah. The other night someone asked me why I love Billie Eilish so much. And I realized it really is because she doesn't give a fuck about what anyone says or thinks about her. And she is just herself and she's weird and she's different and she's creepy and she's beautiful. And that is inspiring to me to be whoever I want to be. Which relates directly to Lisa. And she said he was a misfit and I was a misfit. Mm Mm-hmm. So think about in the mid-70s what it must have been like for Lisa to discover Elvis. At the time, before people weren't always themselves. As intense as societal pressures are nowadays, I can't even imagine in the 70s. As a young female interested in a male-dominated music industry, that must have been everything. And think about the bomb that went off with this album when she heard it. And then not only just loving music, but where it led her to a career as a radio DJ when women weren't getting that job. I think that's at the very heart of our podcast, how music is not just something that we all love and brings us joy. It literally changes lives. And that's why it's so amazing to be able to tell these stories. And for people who don't know Lisa, she had a long career as a radio DJ, not just in Boston at BCN, but all over the country. And she broke a lot of artists. That was one of the great things at WBCN. She helped grow those artists' fan bases, and she ultimately got to meet many of these artists in her job. Think about for Lisa, who got to sit with Elvis for three hours at a lunch and talk specifically about his music, what that must have been like for someone who had been influenced by him so greatly. That is such a rarity, especially with the randomness of him not being able to do the interview and like being so kind to agree to it later. 
and then prove to him to be a really, really smart and interesting and interested person and fan. I just love that this story ends on the cover of Cream Magazine, which at the time was a really influential music magazine. That must have been so gratifying for her. I also love how she says, I probably will never see him again. And I'm okay with that. It was so profound for her at that moment as sort of the culmination of everything. Overall, I think that this story is the perfect example of what our podcast is all about. The discovery of an artist and having them stick with you throughout your life and being able to literally trace the ways in which they shaped your life. And man, did Elvis Costello shape Lisa Traxler's life. So before we go, a couple of things. We always ask our guests their top five most influential favorite songs from the artists. So Lisa's top five Elvis Costello songs are Accidents Will Happen, Beyond Belief, This Year's Girl, Watching the Detectives, and Shipbuilding. So check those out. So I want to thank our guest, Lisa Traxler. Olivia, wasn't she amazing? She was very impressive. She is. And her career, please look her up, read about her. She has an incredible career that goes beyond just the WBCN years. And if you have a great Sonic Impact story to tell, please go on our website, sonicimpactpod.com. And we hope you'll come back the rest of the season. We have a lot of very exciting artists coming up, including Dolly Parton, Eddie Van Halen, you too. Bruce Springsteen, and the list goes on. Yes, it does. Olivia, I just want to say you are a fantastic co-host. I love having you here to talk about these stories. It gives a great perspective. Well, thank you. That's very kind. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you're on it. You're also a great co-host. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) All right, so thanks everybody for joining us on Sonic Impact. Olivia, I'll see you soon. Bye, Dad. Sonic Impact is a production of Sonic Impact Media. The podcast is produced, edited, and hosted by Elliot and Olivia Goldberg. The show is mixed and mastered by Justin Longerbeam. Music provided by Fundamental Music. Artwork designed by Keanu Narsico and Dan Hodgen. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and... Hear the culture. Electric acid. Electric acid.